All right, Genesis chapter 35. Genesis 35. Jacob, he first moves to Bethel, then Bethlehem, the area around Bethlehem, and then to Hebron. And some major incidents happen along the way. Genesis 35. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and live there, and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had, and the rings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. As they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the oak. It was named Alon Baku. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram, and he blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. And the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a libation on it. He also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel began to give labor, uh, to give birth, and she suffered severe labor. And it came about when she was in severe labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. And it came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her grave, that is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. And it came about while Israel was dwelling in that land, that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now there were twelve sons of Jacob, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, then Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, and the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, Dan and Naphtali, and the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid, Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre of Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people, an old man of ripe age, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we're grateful for this opportunity to gather as your people, as men of God, to study your word. Thank you for what you've done in our life by giving us new eyes, new ears, a new heart, and giving us a desire for your word, for the word of righteousness. Lord, we pray that this desire you've given us will be insatiable and until the day we breathe our last breath. May we also, Lord, live a faithful life as these have done in the scriptures. May we live a faithful life until the very end, enduring until the end, for those who endure shall be saved, as your word teaches. We ask, Father, that you'll grant us grace, wisdom, knowledge, true knowledge, 
and also the will, the will to reject our sin and to follow you in full obedience. For your word says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And we know, Lord, that without peace and sanctification, no one will see the Lord. We want to see you. So help us, help us with wisdom, insight, your Holy Spirit, and direct our paths in the highway of holiness. In Christ's name, amen. Genesis 35 continues this narrative that started in chapter 28, the narrative of Jacob leaving or fleeing from the land of Canaan, going north out of Canaan into Padanaram, where some other relatives lived and where he eventually married Rachel, Leah, and the other two women, that is uh, Bilhah and Zilpah. He marries them, he establishes a family there for a few years, and then returns to the land of Canaan. He returns to Canaan, he returns to Bethel in this chapter, which incident started in chapter 28, 2810 to 3515. He made a vow in Bethel, and when he vowed there in chapter 28, he vowed that he would come back and perform certain things in Bethel to commemorate and to honor God for God's faithfulness in his life. So that's what he does in 35, 1 to 15. He returns to Bethel. Then in 35, 16 to 21, he goes to Bethlehem, also called Ephrath, and certain incidents happen there, such as the death of Rachel. Then at, at the end of the chapter, finally, from verses 23 to 29, he goes to Hebron, where his father Isaac had been living, in order to bury him and to take care of business with not only himself, but with his brother Esau. These are the major incidents that happen here in the chapter or places where he visits. Let's pick it up at 35 verse 1. Then God said to Jacob, when? Well, after the incident and the tragedy of chapter 34. In chapter 34, there were a couple of tragedies that occurred. One, the daughter of Jacob was violated. She, was, she had sexual relations or fornication before she was married. She was defiled. This happened in chapter 34. In retaliation of that, her brothers, Simeon and Levi, massacred all the men of the city. Even though all the men of the city were not guilty in it, only the one man was, Shechem was, they massacred all the men. Well, then they not only massacred the men, they looted the possessions of the city. And it also says that they took the people, the rest of the people with them. It says in verse 29, 34, 29, they captured and looted all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, even all that was in the houses. Now, this clan of Jacob has many more people and possessions. Having all that as a, uh, the situation, he was, at the end of chapter 34, presented with the scenario that there might be retaliation from the neighboring Canaanites who understand what has happened in the city of Shechem. Others Canaanites might come and attack me. Well, God is now going to assure him and provide for him that though he was not guilty, Jacob was not guilty, his sons were, Nothing's going to happen to Jacob, and he's going to make his way to Bethel. That's where this revelation or this oracle comes from God to Jacob. Then God said to Jacob, in light of the previous circumstances, this is now what God says, arise, go up to Bethel. He's living in Shechem or near Shechem, but now he's saying, get up from here, a northern city, and go farther south to Bethel, because that's where you're supposed to head to fulfill your vow. Live there, which he does. He lives there for a time. We're not told how long, but he does live there for a time. And build an altar. Make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. In chapter 28, God appeared to Jacob. Jacob made a vow, 28, 20 to 22. He made a vow that he would fulfill that vow if God returned him to the land of Canaan safely, he would go to Bethel and fulfill that vow. 
in order to fulfill the vow, he needs to make an altar because he promised to give to God a tenth of all. And a part of the fulfillment of the vow is to offer sacrifices on the altar to fulfill paying a tithe or a tenth of all to God. And God reminds him of that and tells him that now is the time. It's a good time to go. Verse 2. To prepare himself to meet God again at Bethel. Verse 2. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him. His household, his immediate family, but also all who were with him. Now he has many more people with him because of what happened in the previous chapter. Perhaps most of these are slaves or servants with him in his household. Because it says his household and to all who were with him, which includes more people than before. And Canaanites worship idols. And if there were any remaining members in his household, being a clan, any remaining members in his household who had any affiliation or affinity to idols, he's telling them, Now is the time to get rid of everything, and I think especially to the Canaanites who are now a part of his clan. Put away the foreign gods, get rid of your idols, and purify yourselves or wash yourselves, bathe yourselves. That means immerse yourself in water. That's what it means in verse 2. And also change your garments. Change your garments, maybe perhaps because they had torn and tattered ones. Perhaps they had bloody ones from the previous chapter and the battle. Whatever happened, whatever remained there. It was necessary for them to get rid of their old and dirty and perhaps even bloody garments and put on new garments, to wash them and to put on new garments, to change. This, of course, is external symbols of internal realities, because God always expects that. When the heart has been changed, it will manifest itself on the outside, and sometimes God causes us or makes us do so with a ritual, such as, in this case, purifying themselves and changing their garments. Verse 3, And let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. His purpose in moving everyone, though they might be comfortable having lived in Shechem for a while, it's necessary to move them, and they all listen. Being the patriarch, being the man of wealth, man of influence, and likely an honest and godly man that they recognized, they trusted him and wanted to go ahead with whatever he required, getting rid of idolatry, and even these two rituals, conducting those rituals, and then moving ahead because Jacob wanted to fulfill his vow. God had been good to him. God had been faithful to him. It was only natural then for Jacob to show his gratitude to God by obeying God, obeying what he promised to God, obeying God's oracle to go to Bethel, build an altar, and to fulfill the vow by offering sacrifices on the altar. Verse 4, So, They gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. In verse 4, they submit. They get rid of their idols, which is good. They give the idols and the rings in their ears, their earrings. It doesn't say why the earrings. Perhaps the earrings had... Images of idols. Sometimes this happens in idolatrous places. Jewelry will have images of the idols. And likely this was the case. And so they were giving those up too, lest those earrings be a temptation to worship the idols. And then he hides them all near Shechem under an oak tree or at the uh, bottom of an oak tree. He does so there. It doesn't say why he did so and why he didn't burn them, crush them, uh, do something else like that, break them in pieces and, and just like Jehu did, he made the house of Baal a latrine, a restroom. You know, he, he didn't do something like that, but it doesn't tell us why, but perhaps there was something um, 
the, a, a valid reason. I, I don't think because the scriptures doesn't uh, the scripture doesn't criticize him for doing so. We don't know why he didn't do so. We just know he got rid of them and the people got rid of them, and which is a good thing. Verse five: As they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. There's a great terror. Your footnote in your Bible may say a terror of God, the terror of God. It may say or, actually it should be literal. Literally, it is a terror of God because it was God who brought a dread or a terror on the people that made them be afraid of Jacob and all of the people with him. God made the people afraid of Jacob in fulfillment of this vow and of this oracle that Jacob would return safely, live safely in Canaan, and not be persecuted and not be um, uh, hurt or harmed by the foreigners, the Canaanites, in, either in retaliation for the previous chapter's slaughter or for any other reason. God brought that terror about. Which terror... He promises and conducts for them on various occasions, such as Exodus 15, 16, 23, 27, Deuteronomy 2, 25, 11, 25, and Joshua 2, 9, which references are on the board here. The Joshua 2, 9 one, that one is Rahab the harlot telling the spies that we here in Jericho, our hearts are now melted. We are demoralized because we heard of what the Lord did for Israel against Egypt and at the Red Sea. We heard about all that, and we are terrified, basically. We're, we're, we, don't, we lack our courage now. We're not going to presume to do anything against you now. That's what Rahab says about her own inhabitants in the city of Jericho, that that kind of thing has happened. That's what's happening right here with Jacob. God worked out the circumstances to protect Jacob and his people. Verse 6. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. He renamed this place in chapter 28. This city, Luz, he renamed Bethel because God appeared to him, so he called it House of God. Bethel means House of God. Luz means almond or almond tree. Likely because there are lots of almond trees around there. So they named the place after such. Um, and it's in the land of Canaan because Luz was also a name of a city and a place elsewhere outside of the land of Canaan. But to make sure and to specify which Luz we're talking about has been changed to Bethel. It's the one in the land of Canaan. Because the ones outside of Canaan or the city outside of Canaan, Luz outside of Canaan, was not promised to Jacob and his descendants. But the land of Canaan was. That's why we have this note. They came and everyone with him. Verse 7. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. He names it El Bethel. El Bethel means God of Bethel. So Bethel, though in a Literal sense, it means house of God. Just the phrase, Bethel is the name of the city now. The altar is called the God of Bethel. He names it the God of Bethel like that, which is something God had already said. In 31.13, 31.13, when God appeared to him, he called himself the God of Bethel. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me, now arise, leave this land, and return to the land of your birth. He calls it after the name that God named, in terms of God being there. He revealed himself there and named that place there. One point of clarification, which we may pursue later. When God calls it, El Bethel, the God of Bethel, or even when Jacob calls it Bethel, the God, uh, um, house of God, it doesn't mean God, the true and living God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, and Spirit, are local deities. 
It does not mean that God is a local God. That is only the God of that city or town, Bethel. It doesn't mean that at all. It means it's a name to commemorate some special revelation or a token or an emblem, a reminder that God appeared there to Jacob and made these promises to him. That's the reason for it. And that Jacob should remember it and fulfill his vow in that very place. That's the reason for that name. There are skeptics of the Bible who think the Old Testament God, especially early in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, for example, that God is only a local deity. He's not the God of the whole earth. He's not the God of heaven and earth. He's not even the only true and living God. He's not that. He becomes that later in the Old Testament, and then especially in the New Testament, but especially, more especially, at the Council of Nicaea. This is the, their evolutionary belief of how religion goes from a primitive, regressive form to a sophisticated and progressive form. That's what they think. It starts in polytheism in Genesis, and it ends in monotheism by the end of the Old Testament, then Trinitarian ideas surface in the New Testament, but Trinitarian belief is solidified by the Council of Nicaea in AD 325. That is their paradigm. It's a fallacious paradigm. It's a false one, and it undermines the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. No Christian can believe right. in such foolishness. And it's unscholarly. They claim it's scholarly, but it's unscholarly. It's riddled with false presuppositions, um, selective use of evidence, and for their pernicious results. It's false altogether. Verse 8, 35, 8. Now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the yoke. It was named Alon Baku. Deborah is the name of Rebecca's nurse. We're told of, uh, of her back in chapter 24, 59. When Rebecca left her native place and came to Canaan to marry Isaac, we're told there that Deborah accompanied Rebecca to be her nurse, to be her maid, and to help in, in the household. Presumably, she was very beloved in the household, at least by Rebecca, if not by everybody, and that's why her death at this time, not necessarily at this place, we don't know with whom she was um, all this while, whether she left Rebecca and went with Jacob and then came back with Jacob or something like that, People have speculated. It doesn't say. All it says is, at this point, she died. We don't know if she was in the company and clan of Jacob or not, but she did die at this point. The death of a few are mentioned here. Her death is mentioned here in verse 8. The death of Rachel in 16 to 21. And then the death of Isaac in 28 to 29. These are the significant events in terms of significant people dying in the chapter. She dies there, and then they name the place Alon Bakuth, which means Oak of Weeping. That means that they were very sorrowful to name that tree, the place where she was buried, Oak of Weeping. They must have wailed and bemoaned her death a lot before they moved on because of who she was. Verse 9, 9 to 15, God's appearance to Jacob. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaram and he blessed him. First, we notice the word again. I think again means again. Although some interpreters want to say that this is not another appearance of God. It's the same as chapter 28 or 32 it's not uh, another one, a, a second appearance. I think it is a second appearance. Because it, it says, Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaram and he blessed him. Um, so what did God do when he blessed him? He, reminds, uh, he, he tells him, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. 
He gives him a new name. According to chapter 32 and this chapter, it doesn't necessarily mean the name Jacob is not supposed to be used anymore. Only the name Israel is to be used. Because we know both Moses, later in Genesis, also throughout the Law of Moses and throughout the Old Testament, the prophets, they refer to this patriarch as both Jacob and Israel. It doesn't necessarily mean the old name can never be used. But the new name is added. Israel. Why? Because back in chapter 32, he wrestled with God and God permitted Jacob to have victory when God tested or wrestled with Jacob. So Israel is a name that commemorates how he wrestled with God and was victorious. Whereas Jacob is a name that commemorates how he, in the womb, wrestled with his brother Esau and was victorious in his lifetime over Esau. Jacob and Israel. These names. Verse 11. God also said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. He is being fruitful and multiplying, but he will not see his descendants like the sand of the sea and the stars of heaven. He won't see that. He won't see that physically, and he won't see that spiritually. But by faith, he believes that it will happen physically, and it will happen spiritually. Physically, that his own physical descendants will become numerous and become a populous nation inhabiting the land of Canaan. Physically, I'm sorry, spiritually, he knows that one of his descendants will be Christ, Christ or Messiah, Christ Jesus. He knows that and he has his hope in that. He believes in the gospel, so he's believing in the coming death and resurrection of Christ for his forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And he knows that because of Christ, there will be Jews and Gentiles who believe in Christ and will be his spiritual descendants. And Jacob will be the father or spiritual father of us all. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob are spiritual fathers. This is what God's promising to him in verse 11. Also that kings shall come forth from you. Kings in a literal sense, physical sense, and even kings in a spiritual sense. In the literal sense, 17.6 and 17.16. In chapter 17, twice, God promised to Abraham and to Sarah that kings would come forth from them. That same promise is reiterated here to Jacob. Kings would come from him. We also know from Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20. In Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20, God prepared the nation of Israel under Moses to have kingship because he gave instructions for kingship, for a literal king. And as we know from the books of Samuel and Kings, there were literal kings from the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, and so forth, in the land of Canaan, the nation of Israel. Literal kings did come forth. But also, the literal, ultimate king, the king of kings, Jesus Christ, comes from Judah, which Jacob announced in advance in chapter 49, verses 9 to 12. In chapter 49, especially verse 10, he mentions that Judah will be the ancestor of Christ. In 49.10, Jacob, the patriarch, he prophesies that that will, will occur. So Jacob knows that among the literal physical kings, there will be Jesus Christ. Now we come to the spiritual part of it. In a sense, God was meaning spiritual kings because he mentions to Israel under Moses, that if Israel is faithful to God, obedient to God, that they would be a kingdom 
of priests and a holy nation. Exodus 19, verse 6. Exodus 19, 6. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Well, in 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 2, 5 and 9, Peter says that the spiritual aspect of kingship is fulfilled in us, we who believe in Christ. If we believe in Christ, we are also going to be reigning and ruling. We are also called kings, a royal priesthood, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 5 and 9. Spiritually speaking, we are beneficiaries of these promises of God. God's promise fulfilled in us as kings. 35 verse 12. And the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you, and I will give, it, I will give the land to your descendants after you. That land will belong to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Did they ever possess that land in their lifetime? No. The only thing that they owned in terms of acquired property was that cave that Abraham purchased in chapter 23. Otherwise, they had to rent and borrow. They had to pay for their flocks to... to, um, to graze here and there, they had to do that. They didn't even own those pieces of property. They were nomads and shepherds. That's the way they were. So they never owned anything, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then one day, the physical descendants will possess the land of Canaan. However, even in the time of David and Solomon, the height of their Glory. They didn't possess all the land of Canaan. They didn't possess it all the way north to the Euphrates River, every, every territory that they were supposed to. Yes, it did reach to a certain extent to the Euphrates in Solomon's day, but they didn't reach it completely in terms of all the territory leading up there. Also, on the west side, they did not conquer the area of Phoenicia, and the Philistines completely. And they didn't have all the territory going down south to Egypt, to the river of Egypt. So they did not possess David and Solomon in the height of their glory. They didn't possess every acre of land promised to them even. They possessed most of it, much of it, but not all of it. If that's the case, when is this Fulfilled. How is this fulfilled? It has to be fulfilled in the spiritual sense, in the full sense. Spiritually speaking, possessing Canaan means being a part of the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Zion, the heavenly city. That is the ultimate goal. That's what the land of Canaan represents. It anticipates that. And we who belong to Christ will enjoy that. This is elaborated on, this kind of belief is taught in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 and chapter 11. Hebrews 3 and 4, and then chapter 11, verses 8 to 19. Hebrews 11, 8 to 19. That's where this doctrine is elaborated. Verses 13 to 15. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. 13, God went up, which means God came down. God came down to appear to him in verse 9, right? A similar expression is found in 17.22, when God appeared to Abraham. It says... In 17.22, And when he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Well, in 17 verse 1, it says, The Lord appeared to Abram. The Lord appeared to Abram, which means he descended. And then after he finished this oracle to Abraham, it says God went up from Abraham. 17.22. 
Moreover, we have 18.33. God also appeared to Abraham in chapter 18. 18 verse 1, it says, The Lord appeared to him. The Lord appeared to him. Then 18.33. And as soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed. The Lord departed. And the same here. God personally came to meet Jacob. It doesn't say in what form, but he did come and appeared to Jacob. And after the oracle, he ascended to where he was before. And who would this be? Jesus, Jesus Christ. John 1.18. No, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. This would be Christ. Then commemorating this is in verse 14. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a libation on it. He also poured oil on it. To commemorate this place, he puts a pillar, a pillar of stone there. A pillar of stone, which likely was a few stones piled up there. And then he poured a drink offering, and drink offerings were usually wine. So he poured a drink offering of wine on there, and he poured oil on there, on the pile, the pillar. Why wine? In the Old Testament, just as in the New Testament, wine in the Old, it prefigured and symbolized the coming death of Christ. And wine in the New Testament, Matthew 26, 1 Corinthians 11, Wine signifies, the cup signifies the blood of Christ. Christ, the blood of Christ, because Christ appeared to him. And he's reminded of it. And so he pours wine as a symbol of that belief. The oil represents the Holy Spirit. The anointing of the Holy Spirit, oil and the Holy Spirit, are often equated in the, in the scriptures. And that's why oil was poured. And... 15, so Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. We now turn to Bethlehem and the incidents of Bethlehem, 16 to 20. It's actually 16 to 22, but we'll take 16 to 21 together and verse 22 separately. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth, and she suffered severe labor. And it came about when she was in severe labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. They're headed to Ephrath. She's in severe labor. Her midwife tells her not to fear because she has another son. Midwives are meant to encourage the pregnant women to deliver, correct? Correct. They are there to encourage so that they, through their birth pangs, can deliver the child and do so successfully. We don't fault the midwife. She's trying to encourage. But she is in severe labor, and it takes her life. The baby, Benjamin, is alive, but she dies in childbirth. She wanted another son, and the midwife likely remembered Rachel's desire. It says in chapter 30, verse 24, 30, 24, and she named him Joseph, saying, May the Lord give me another son. May the Lord give me another son. She was happy to bear Joseph, but the name Joseph means he added or to add so another son would be to add another son to the family, right? She prays, she wants God to give her another son. It's fulfilled when she dies. As she's dying, the new son comes. Ironically, in chapter 30, verse 1, when she did not bear any children, in chapter 30, verse 1, it says, And when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister, and she said to Jacob, Give me children, or else I die. 
She wants children or death. And in this ironic way, she did receive children and death at the same time. She received both. Well, verse 18. It came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. Her soul departed, it says. She's buried, which we'll find out in verse 19. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Ephrath is another word for Bethlehem, another name for the same city. She died and she was buried. Her physical body was buried, but her soul departed from her body to the world to come, to the afterlife. The body and the soul are the two major components of every human being. A physical body and an unphysical, unseen, invisible, intangible soul or spirit. We have soul or spirit and we have body. Those are the two main components or natures that we have. The seen, visible nature and the invisible nature of every human being signified or, or explained actually here when it says her soul departed. This is similar to Stephen in Acts seven fifty nine, When he's about to die, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Well, it says in the next verse and in chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, that the disciples took Stephen's body and buried his body. Well, when he says to Christ, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, he knows his soul is departing his body and going to be with Christ. In the same way, the Apostle Paul says that he's hard-pressed between both directions. He, lo- he has the desire to depart and be with Christ. He says, depart and be with Christ. That word departure is also right here too. Verse 18, her soul was departing. Departing the body in this world to go to the world to come. Rachel experienced this just as we all do. This happens to everyone, every human. Two components. When we die physically, our soul departs from our body and goes to the world to come. Eventually, there will be a day of resurrection when soul and body will be reunited and then we will be in resurrected bodies, either glorified bodies for eternal life or bodies that are going to experience the wrath of God and the soul forever and ever. Either we're righteous or wicked forever. In 19, it calls this place Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Ephrath was the original name, and then it was later renamed to Bethlehem. This is important because of what happens in Bethlehem. What happens in Bethlehem. Verse 20, Jacob set up a pillar over her grave. That is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. He sets up a pillar there too because of the wife that he loves. He wants to commemorate her death there. This place was known later in Jacob's life. He makes mention of it in chapter 48, verse 7. Also in 1 Samuel 10, verse 2. 1 Samuel 10, 2. In the days of Samuel, hundreds of years after this time, Jacob lives about 18 to 1900 B.C. Samuel lived about 1000 B.C. in the time of David. About eight to 900 years later, it was still a known place in the land of Israel. Even later in history, in the time of Christ and the apostles, people knew about Rachel's tomb. They knew about it and spoke of it. They wrote about it. It's a place that was preserved over those practically 2,000 plus years. And even today, there are people who think they know where that was. 
21. Then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Adar. The tower of Adar. It may also be translated the tower of the flock. If we render it as a common noun, it would be the flock. If we render it as a proper noun, a geographical name, then it would be Adar because Adar in Hebrew means flock. Either it's a proper name or it's a common noun. Either way, there is this place where he went that's near Bethlehem. It's in the proximity of Bethlehem, not too far away, perhaps a half a mile to a mile away by Bethlehem. Why is this important? Why is it significant? Because we hear later in the book of Ruth that those in Bethlehem, remember Boaz and Ruth? They are inhabitants of Bethlehem. The inhabitants of Bethlehem, both the leaders, the elders, and the common people, they understand these previous verses, such as our passage, and they wish a blessing on Ruth, a blessing that sounds very messianic, very Christological, in Ruth chapter 4, 11 to 12. And we know that they make a connection to David because of verses 17 to 22. At the end of the book of Ruth, chapter 4, 17 to 22, they make reference to David. They connect Judah's son, Perez, to Boaz, and then to David. And who is David? The ancestor of Christ. There in Ruth chapter 4. Also, Micah 4, verse 8. Micah 4, verse 8. And Micah 5, verse 2. In those places, Micah the prophet... He refers to this tower, and he, in our chapter 35, he refers to this tower, and he also refers in Micah 5, verse 2, to Christ being born in Bethlehem. Christ being born in Bethlehem, which we know even the unbelieving scribes and Pharisees and priests, they knew that the Christ was to be born in Bethlehem. Matthew 2, 1 to 6. When the evil king Herod asked of the religious authorities where the Christ was to be born, the religious authorities who did not believe in Christ, that Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, is the Christ, they didn't believe that. They still said, yeah, we know the prophet says he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. That's where he is to be born. That's Matthew 2, 1 to 6. Well, Luke chapter 2. In Luke 2, 1 to 20, these events all come together. These events or these, the, the significance of all these events come together in Luke chapter 2. Where was Christ born? The answer, Bethlehem, right? Chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Luke 2, 1 to to seven. In verse 4 it says that Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, who was also born in Bethlehem, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and family of David. Joseph and Mary, they are descendants of David. They have to go there. They register to, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him, and was with child. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. So Jesus was born there in Bethlehem. Then it says in verse 8, and in the same region, region of what? Region of Bethlehem. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. In Genesis, he named that place, that named the tower, the tower, tower of the flock, or the tower of Adar, which means flock. Why? Because shepherds made use of that tower for their flocks. Right? Then it says, 
in verse 15. Luke 2.15, And it came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then, straight to Bethlehem, and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And then they go to Bethlehem. They're near Bethlehem, likely at that tower, keeping watch over their flocks, and then they go when the angel tells them to go. All of this is in the book of Genesis, not merely implicitly to be expanded upon by Micah, Matthew, and Luke, but I think even explicitly, Moses wrote this, and explicitly Jacob knew this because of revelation God gave to Jacob. I'm asserting Jacob knew and believed that Christ would be born in Bethlehem and that he would be announced near Bethlehem to the shepherds. Wow. Let me just add something outside the Bible. We believe there is one gospel. That's why I said it has to be that Jacob knew the coming of Christ. He had to know It doesn't tell us in Genesis every little thing that he knew. But it's not far-fetched, since Jacob was a prophet, that the prophet received revelation that he didn't write in every detail. But he implied by certain details. That's not far-fetched. Just like John 21, 25 says that Jesus performed many other signs, many other things and deeds which are not written in this book of John. Because if we were to write everything, John says, the whole world would not contain the books. Right? That's hyperbole, but still he's making a point. I could go on and on writing. We all could write a lifetime worth of books and they wouldn't fill everything that Jesus said and did. Well, in that same way, Jacob knew some things. Uh, I said I'm going to go outside the Bible to prove it also. If unbelieving Jews, if unbelieving Jews knew that Christ would be born in Bethlehem, such as Matthew 2, if unbelieving Jews believe things like that, but then when they are presented with the situation, they say, no, no, yeah, I know he's supposed to be born there, but it's not Jesus of Nazareth. Then it at least shows us that the unbelieving Jews, when they have a moment of sobriety, and not unbelief, rejecting Christian truth, when they have a moment of sobriety, they're at least telling us what they believe, right? So let me tell you what two unbelieving Jewish sources, or at least they're in the possession of Jewish unbelievers, what two unbelieving Jewish sources say about this locality. One is called the Jerusalem Targum, and the other one is called the Targum of Jonathan, or John, uh, Yohanan ben Uziel. These are two Targums. A Targum is an Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, and the translation is not only a translation, but it has brief words sometimes in some passages of commentary or explanatory to make sure that the reader in the Aramaic language understands what is being said. And even at other times, they break out in joy because they know the Christological messianic significance of a given passage, so they just break out and say something. Okay? Here are these two examples. The one says, quote, The tower of Ader, the place from whence it is to be, the King Mashiach, will be revealed at the end of the days. They're fond of calling their uh, Messiah King Mashiach or Mashiha in Aramaic. They are fond of calling him King Messiah or King Christ. They're fond of doing that. That's why we read it here. They say he's going to be revealed at the end of the days right there at the tower. He was revealed. The angels revealed who he was to the shepherds. And then the shepherds went 
a little ways into Bethlehem to find Christ born there. Another one, the Targum of Jonathan says, quote, the place from whence the King Messiah will be revealed in the end of days. That's this place. So at least those two Jewish sources, in the hands of Jewish unbelievers, they know that Christ is to be revealed there. All the other particulars, that is disputed. Uh, Many of the other particulars are disputed, but at least they grant that. If they could know this before the time of Christ, why couldn't Jacob know it as a believer? If they could know it as unbelievers before the time of Christ, why could Jacob not know it being a prophet and a believer, a true prophet and believer? Next, verse 22. Verse 22, And it came about, while Israel was dwelling in that land, that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Here, Reuben, the firstborn, son of Jacob, commits incest. He has relations with his father's wife. This is, in some ways, just like it was in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There was a man who had his father's wife. He does this. This is a sin. It merely says, though, that Jacob heard of it. It's actually similar to chapter 34, when Jacob heard of how his daughter was humbled, he kept quiet and waited for his sons to come in from the field to explain to them what had happened. In the, in the similar way, even though Jacob didn't act immediately in chapter 34, he did in chapter 49 of Genesis. Remember that? In, in Genesis 49, 5-7, he does pronounce a curse on his two sons, Simeon and Levi, who massacred unjustly all the men of the city. He pronounced a curse on them. Well, in the same way here, chapter 49, verses 3 and 4, Jacob, he curses, at least withholds a blessing, but it's actually a curse. He curses Reuben for doing so. 49, 3, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. He pronounces a curse. He's not going to have preeminence and dignity in terms of the right of the firstborn. What he's implying there is explicitly mentioned in 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1. 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. Though Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came the leader, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. 1 Chronicles 5, 1 and 2. The birthright was given to Joseph later in Genesis 48, and then in the time of Moses and Joshua. Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, received the blessing that Reuben should have received for his descendants. They received it instead of Reuben. This means that Jacob knew it was a sin, and he cursed the sin and the man who sinned in that way. Lastly, we come to the section from 22, the second part of it and following. 22 to 27. Now, there were 12 sons of Jacob, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, then Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, and the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, Dan and Naphtali, and the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid, Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre of Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. These sons are listed 
from the wives in preparation for what's to come. In chapter 36, we will see the genealogy of Esau. Then Esau is basically set aside for Joseph and his prominence to come in 37 to 50, Genesis 37 to 50. The genealogy is here to complete the, the history of who was actually born and from whom, since we're talking about birth and death in this chapter. It's completed here and summarized for us in this way. It calls him in 23, calls Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, in anticipation for a curse on Reuben for what he did in verse 22. Though he is the firstborn, and though technically, chronologically, he's listed here, his blessing is going to be removed in chapter 49. It's anticipatory to verse, uh, or chapter 49, verses 3 and 4. Also, just to diffuse the, the allegations of the critic, we know that Benjamin was born in Canaan. But this is a summary. It's a summary. So Moses generalizes in verse 26 and says, these are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Yes, the other 11 were born there, but not the one. The one was born in, in Canaan, which the narrative says so in the preceding chapter. I mean, the preceding paragraph in this chapter. Sometimes the Bible summarizes. For example, how long were the sons of Israel in Egypt? How would we summarize that? 400 years. But technically, according to Exodus chapter 12, 40 and 41, they were there for 430 years. But for shorthand, we say they were there 400 years. And we should not fault the Bible for doing so. We do that all the time. We summarize whether it's time or money, uh, a year, years, we summarize like that. And that's what's happening here. 27. We notice that Abraham and Isaac sojourn in Hebron. And this, name, this place has actually three names. Mamre, because that was the first or the main inhabitant. The name of a man, Mamre. And then it was called Kiriath Arba and also Hebron. These are three names. The name that sticks is the name Hebron. Right. Abraham and Isaac sojourned there. Why does it say sojourn? I thought Isaac was born in Canaan. I thought Jacob was born in Canaan. Why does it say they sojourned there? Because they're living for the world to come. Back to Hebrews 11, 8 to, 8 to 19. They are sojourning in Canaan, headed to heaven. Verse 28. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. He lived 180 years. So Abraham, in chapter 25, it says he lived to be 175 years. Isaac surpassed Abraham by five years. By this point, Jacob would be 120 years. 120 years, which also means that he had been in the land of Canaan for about 10 years, if not more, when these events occurred within that period of time. Jacob is 120. How do we know Jacob is 120? In Genesis 25:20, it says that Isaac and Rebekah had Jacob and Esau uh, I mean, Isaac and Rebekah were married when Isaac was 40 years old, 25, 20. But then Jacob and Esau were born to them when Isaac was 60 years old, according to Genesis 25, 26. 25, 26, Jacob was born when Isaac was 60. That means Jacob is 120 at this point when his father dies. He'll live to be 147 years old. Jacob will. Verse 29. 
And Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. An old man of ripe age and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. It says he died an old man of ripe age. This phrase or phraseology we find also in chapter 25 in reference to Abraham. He died the same way. This expression is meant to say that they lived a long, good life and they did not die in pain and misery and the torture of the thought of the afterlife, the fear of death and hell and shaking their fists in spite against God. They didn't live that kind of a life. They lived a happy, content life their whole life. And when it was time to die, they died and they had peace of mind as to where they would go in the afterlife, in the world to come. They knew. Not everybody dies that kind of a death. But believers having faith in Christ and his finished work will die like that. They should die like that. Amen. We're told that he was gathered to his people. From chapter 25 also, 25 verse 8, it mentions that Abraham was gathered to his people. And who are these people? That is, the other believers who died in advance of them. Right. So their soul... In the case of Isaac, Isaac's soul or spirit went to be with Abraham's soul and Sarah's soul and so forth. And Noah's, Abel's, Adam's, Enoch's, like that. Okay? That's what it means here. Gathered to his people. And lastly in 29, Esau and Jacob buried him. He gives the order in terms of the birth order. Esau is the firstborn. Esau comes up. Esau comes. There had been enough reconciliation between Jacob and Esau, and even Esau and his father, that Esau, he has enough courtesy, respect, common grace in him to go and bury his father. This also is what Ishmael did, Ishmael and Isaac did so in Genesis 25, verse 9. Both of them went to bury Abraham. However, it doesn't mean Esau was a believer, that he was saved and redeemed. Just like it doesn't mean that Ishmael in chapter 25 was a believer, saved and redeemed. Because they manifest some common grace doesn't mean they have special grace, sovereign grace, elective grace in their life. A lot of people express, manifest common grace, but they don't have that saving grace that saves them from their sins. A lot of people have one, but not the other. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.